Um, we are in Psalm chapter 40, which you see up here. Um, I picked this psalm because in the late 1980s, when I was in middle school, I just dated myself, uh, for those of you that are good with math, uh, in the late, late 1980s, my brother started listening to an Irish rock band by the name of U2. You've probably heard of them. They're still around. And they had a song in one of their earlier albums called 40. And this was the first couple of verses of this song verbatim was the, was the, the main chorus of this song. And so I, we were like, oh, yes, look, we can convince mom to let us listen to these guys because they're singing, they're singing church songs, you know. So we didn't show her all the songs. But, we, uh, you know, they, they, they definitely uh, had some Christian undertones and, I'm not, I'm not going to defend where he's at necessarily. I'm not sure that I know exactly. That's not the point. The point is, is this psalm, I, I picked it because the, the words of that song have stuck with me. And I just encourage you that if you want to memorize scripture, I encourage you to find, there are resources out there where it is put to music. And it is amazing how easy it is to memorize things that are in, in poetic form, in music. And so I just encourage you to find resources for that. Find those for your kids. We have little little CDs that are, I guess you guys don't listen to CDs anymore, whatever. <laughs> we have CDs that our kids listen to that, um, that, that put little, uh, just little lullaby songs, but they're scripture. So I just encourage you to, to give your kids the gift of scripture in their hearts from the youngest, youngest age. All right. So this is the Psalm of David. Um, it's broken into two main parts, chapter, uh, verses 1 through 10. And then verses 11 through 17, um, chapter, verses, sorry, I keep saying chapter, verses 1 through 10 are, David is looking back at a time in which he was in a pit. He was in a desperate situation and he cried out to the Lord and the Lord answered him. He picked him up from this, what he calls a slimy pit or a pit of destruction. He pulls him out of it and he sets him on a firm place to stand, this stable rock. And he says, God puts this new song in his mouth, a song of praise to our God. And so he, he's looking back. And then right around verse 11, you see a shift in the, the tense of the verbs. They were past tense, and then suddenly they move back to future tense and present tense. And so now David finds himself again in this place of desperation, something like a pit. And he is looking back to what God did in the first 10 verses. He's looking back to God's faithfulness earlier in his life, and he's finding encouragement in that as he cries out to God again to be his deliverer, okay? So that's the breakdown of the psalm. Um, uh, it, it's interesting. It, it has an interesting structure I'm going to talk about in just a moment, but let's read through it. So we're going to read through the ESV version, so we can go to the next slide. I don't have a clicker up here. Good. Um, Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. And we don't know, I'm going to pause for a moment, we don't know the exact backdrop to this psalm. We don't know exactly what life situation David was in. I, I've got a, a guess, 
And so I might be wrong, but I think there's some things in the text that uh, support this, this, this guess. And again, it is a guess. It don't, we don't know for sure. Um, earlier in David's life, God rescued him from the persecution of Saul, right? He was running in the wilderness, hiding from Saul. And I think that might be what David is looking back to, this time in his life where he was waiting patiently for the Lord. And God turned his ear to him. He leaned in, inclined his ear to David, heard his cry, and put him upon a firm place. And eventually David does become the king. But then later on in David's life, he has a moment where he has a moment of, of, uh, of failure, and he sins, he sleeps with the other man's wife, Bathsheba, and then basically orchestrates the murder of this man. And then a little bit later on, his son Absalom betrays him, begins to tell people as they come up to, to, be, to come before David for judgment. He says, he says, ah, David doesn't really have time to hear your request. He's busy. And so Absalom, in a sense, steals the hearts of the people. And the people turn to Absalom. And then David, again, finds himself fleeing for his, from his, for his life. Now his very son is, is, is coming after him to kill him with an army. And so I think that might be the second place where David's at. Now he's, he's looking back to God's salvation earlier. And now he's in this second pit. And he's saying, God, deliver me. And I've got some reasons for that. One is, he says in verse 3, he put a new song on my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Why would people seeing God's faithfulness to David fear and put their trust in the Lord? I think it might be that some of these people who had turned to Absalom's side, who had gone the route of everyone else, were recognizing the faithfulness of God to David, and it caused a fear, a recognition that, oh, David trusted the Lord. That's the right path. Not, as it says in verse 4, the man who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. So much of the nation of Israel had gone astray after a lie that Absalom was uh, the rightful king. And so there, maybe that's there. I'm not sure. But it's a, it's a guess. We're not sure. It's just something to think about. So let's keep reading. Verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I, can we go to the next one? Yeah. <clears throat> I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. The wondrous deeds of God, the, his thoughts toward. You know, God thinks of you. Some of you, when you think of God thinking of you, you, you only think of negative thoughts. That God's just angry with you. He's frustrated of all your failures. But God says his thoughts towards us, his wondrous deeds, they're more than you can count. So if in your prayer life you run out of things to thank God for, you're probably not thinking hard enough. You're probably not meditating long enough because the reality is, is all the goodness of God towards us is beyond our ability to number. Verse 6, and this is, verse 6 through 8 is, the, is a messianic prophecy. So it, it's speaking to David in some way. It is, it is related to David's life, but in a much greater sense, it is pointing to the, the second David, the messianic king who is to come the son of David. So verse 6, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. So that doesn't fit to be about David, right? There's not a lot of prophecy. There's not any prophecies that point forward to this coming, the first David, but there's a lot of prophecies pointing to Jesus Christ, the second David. 
So in the scroll of the book, it is written to me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And the book of Hebrews points to Jesus. And in Hebrews 10, uh, shows how this verse points to Jesus. We'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. Verse 9, I have told the glad news of deliverance to the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Now notice the change in verb tense. It went from I have not concealed, verse 11, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. We love his salvation. Do we, do we rejoice in the loving kindness of God or do we rejoice in his salvation and continually say, great is the Lord? That should be the cry of our heart. In verse 17, the last verse, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. So my outline, next, chap, next slide. Uh, it's simply this, uh, the middle is mercy, I'll explain that, the pit, the waiting, the rescue, and the proper response. Let's go to the middle is mercy. So the structure is Psalm 40. Um, biblical poets, and actually a lot of the biblical authors, they tended to use a, a poetic structure when they wrote called a chiasm. So anybody ever heard of a chiasm? You can go impress your friends with this. All right, we have, a, we have someone that's heard of a chiasm. It's a, it's a chiastic structure. And what it is is it's kind of like a mirror. It's if you took a mirror and put it in the middle of a poem, one half goes this way and the other half you see going down here, and that chiastic structure I'm showing right here is, is what it is is the very first verse in the, in, the, in the poem is somehow paralleled or mirrored in the very last verse. And the second verse, or the section, little sections, sometimes it's not just a simply a verse, is mirrored in the second to last section. And so it, it kind of keeps kind of paralleling itself like a mirror all the way till it gets to the middle. And often the biblical authors would use the middle verse, whatever phrase is right there in the middle, and that was their main point. That was one of the central ideas they wanted to communicate. And I say that not so you can be fancy and be like, hey, I know what a chiastic structure is. And um, I say that, number one, because the biblical authors, they weren't barbarians. Sometimes there's this arrogance in modern societies to think that people long ago weren't as smart as us. And reality is, is sometimes we struggle to understand the Bible not because we're smarter, but because we're not as smart as the people who wrote it, <laughs> right? If any of you hung out with Paul, you would quickly feel that your intellect is, is lacking. 
Paul was far more brilliant than any of us. Jesus was far more brilliant than anyone in this room. And so we, we need to come with humility before the Bible and recognize that these guys are brilliant poets. In fact, in fact, if you look at the whole Bible, in a way, it's kind of like a chiasm. It's kind of like a mirror. And, and I, it's even almost like a ring that the beginning is somewhat like the end. In the very beginning in Genesis, you see a tree of life. You see God in fellowship with humanity walking in their presence, right? In the very end, you see another tree of life. And you see God again in the presence of the people, and they're in a garden again. All right, there's this beautiful, it's also a city. But, there, but there's the, it has some garden aspects to it. And so in many ways, the Bible is this creation, fall, redemption, recreation. Right? You see how it kind of parallels. And in the very middle... In the very middle is the main point, and it's a cross. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament points to him, and all of the New Testament celebrates him. And for all of eternity, we will worship him. So chiasm. So if you get to the very middle part of this little chapter here, At the beginning, you see a personal experience of salvation, this A part up here, personal experience of salvation, verses 1 through 3. He waited patiently for the Lord in this pit, and God hears his cries and delivers him. And if you look at the very end of the verse, I'm sorry, the very end of the, the chapter, verse 17, it sounds like he's back in a pit. I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. He waited patiently, and now he's saying, God, don't delay. Don't make me wait any longer. Respond to my cry for help. Uh, B and C aren't quite as clear, but they're there. D, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but D, I think it's very important D, because I think it points out the main point of this passage is is right in the middle of D, okay? So it's a proclamation of God's love and faithfulness, verse 9 and 10, and then that D with a little line next to it, you see that little what is this, half of, a, half of a quotation mark? What is that called? Is that an apostrophe? Thank you. Thank you, Mom. I needed somebody to help me out here. So, um, it, They call it D prime. And so each of these is like A, A prime, B, B prime. But that D is, yeah, it's an apostrophe. So that, that D apostrophe is confidence in God's love and faithfulness. Verse 11. So let me just look at that real quick. Verse 10. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. So David has not concealed God's steadfast love and faithfulness. And then there's a little phrase, beginning of verse 11. And then it says, your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. So he doesn't conceal it, and God's steadfast love and faithfulness will preserve him. And right between that is a little short phrase that I think we should focus on. Verse 11, the beginning of it, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. At the center of this psalm, the main point is God's mercy. As we go through, keep that in your mind, because some of you in numerous points in your life, have probably found yourself in what feels like a pit. And we'll talk about the pit in a second. But remember that it is God's mercy. And he says he will not restrain it, almost as if God, in the depth of his heart, longs to show mercy. And when his child is in a pit and they're crying out, 
It's almost as if God is having to restrain his passionate love from rescuing him. Parents, have you ever done this where you have a child that you really know needs to just learn something and you really want to fix it for them? They're struggling with a paper. They're struggling with this chore. They're struggling with relationships. And you're just like, let me just, let me just grab it and fix it for you. But you know, you know that they need to go through the weight. You know that they need to go through the trial. And you're restraining, moms, you really have to do this, right? Dad sometimes like, no problem, I don't mind, you'll figure it out. But moms, but mamas, mamas who represent the compassionate heart of God, the image of God's love and compassionate, his desire to nurture and care for his children, you just want to fix it. You want to fix it for them so bad. And dad's like, let them, let them, let them, let them wait, let them suffer a little bit, Right? It's like you're having to restrain this mercy. And he's saying in the pit, God, I know that you're not even going to restrain your mercy. You're going to let it flow. You're going to pull me out of it. I'm confident in this. God will not restrain his mercy. So uh, Psalm 103, real quick, has an interesting way it brings these two together. It says, God who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. So let's talk about the pit, okay? Um, ESV is what I'm using. It says pit of destruction, miry bog. NIV says slimy pit, mud and mire. NLT, the New Living Translation, says the pit of despair. So it could be like a cistern. It could be, a, it could be something like what Joseph got thrown into by his brothers. Or it could be like Jeremiah, what he got thrown into. About Jeremiah, they, it says he threw him in there and he sunk down into the mud. They threw him in a well. The water was all gone, but it was still muddy. And this prophet of God sinks down deep into the mud, that muddy mire. It's nasty, nasty stuff. No one enjoys that. It's also sometimes used to describe the grave, uh, a lot of times, actually. Psalm 30, verse 3. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Have I ever tried to dig in Dallas, Texas soil, clay, when it's been raining. You know what I'm talking about, right? Sticks to your shovel. You, get, you pull it up, and it won't even come off your shovel. you got to get a log or something to bang your shovel on to get that stuff on. And a few minutes later, you start trying to walk, and your feet are like 85 pounds because you got a, a foot and a half of mud just caked to it. My kids would go playing in this deep stuff on the edge of a pond, and they'd come back, and I'm like, where's your shoes? Oh, I don't know, Dad. Somewhere... <laughs> Some are about a foot or two down below the ground, right? It is, Texas clay is bad. You ever tried to run up one of those, like a hill, slick clay? It's funny looking, isn't it? Yeah, it's fun to watch people try to do that. that that's this picture of this miry clay that we get stuck in and we want to get out of it. So I, um, I don't know, a number of years back, that's me in this nice little excavator picture. That was a while back before I was older and wiser. My father-in-law rented a big excavator. We were clearing a piece of land. He was, gonna, he was kind of developing it, turning it into a residential neighborhood was the plan. And he let me drive an excavator. I had a business degree and a theology degree. <laughs> Neither of those prepare you to know how to handle a big piece of power equipment like that. Does anybody own a, a large uh, equipment um, rental company near Victoria, Texas? Okay, good. All right. Just want to make sure because I'm going to say I'm sorry. Apologize. Um, man, so I was just going to, we were trying to drain that pond, and I was trying to dig a little spot out so it would run out. I just got a little too close. I took a little shortcut. He warned me. 
And I was like, oh, no problem. Next thing I know, and I think, oh, no big deal. The, have you, anybody ever driven one of those? No? It's really cool. Those, those big old uh, arms, what is it? <laughs> Buckets? I don't they Help me. I don't know. All right. Got a bunch of white-collar workers. Nobody knows what this is. <laughs> you, get, you got to reach out and grab. You can grab, and you can pull yourself pretty far with that thing. And so I was confident. I was like, no big deal. Boom. And so then I grabbed and <clears throat> wasn't moving, so I decided I'll hit the gears at the same time as I'm pulling, right? I thought I'd, I'd played video games. I could figure this out. <laughs> Next thing I know, <clears throat> I turned that thing. I've got mud streaking across my windshield. I'm so far down in the mud. And I'm like, this is real bad. <laughs> oh, I'm embarrassed. I keep trying, wiggling, going deeper and deeper like quicksand. Finally, I go, I got to call my father-in-law. I didn't want to call my father-in-law. He rented that. This is going to cost a lot to get this thing out. Yeah. <laughs> right. Two, a D4 and a D5 uh, bulldozer. We got the biggest chains we could find. We couldn't pull it out. Those things were pulling. I'm like, oh, father-in-law, I'm so sorry. I, I am down in the mud and mire, right? I am stuck, and there's nothing I can do to get out. He finally had to get an excavator to come and dig all the mud out from around it. Not an excavator, it was a backhoe, a little bit smaller, but dig up some of the mud around it. And then once you got that <laughs> suction of that mud pulled off, boop, pulled right out. I'd say pulled right out, I and mean, we still had two bulldozers pulling it out, so pulled right out. There's no big deal, father-in-law. So anyway, that cost about a day of rental time, and we did get it cleaned up. But the point is, is this, is sometimes we get stuck so deep that our first impulse when we get stuck in the mud and mire is to try to figure it out ourselves, right? It's the manic point. It's the anxiety. It's the, I'm going to scramble up this wall. Excuse me. I'm going to scramble up this hill. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to pull myself out through enough effort, through enough energy. If I just try hard enough, I can get out of the pit. You may ever do that spiritually. I'm going to figure it out, right? I don't need help, God. I'm going to just, I'm going to suck it up and make it happen. That's the first impulse. The second impulse is called despair. It's the moment in which you go, I just can't do it. And I'm thinking in there, as I'm standing there, actually my father was already there at that point, but before I called him, I'm thinking, I don't want to call him because I don't want to see his face. I don't know what, how much I've cost him. He already let me marry his daughter and he shouldn't have. And, and, and now I've done this. I've ruined his excavator. Probably, that thing probably cost half a million dollars. I hope I don't ruin it. Right? I'm, it I didn't, as far as we know. Um, so, so I'm stressed, I'm frustrated, and I don't want to call my father-in-law. And sometimes we reach that spot. We're like, God's done with me because I did something stupid. Or sometimes we feel like it's not our fault and we say, I'm done with God because he put me in this pit. And so regardless of why we're in the pit, our responses sometimes go back from between manic, I got to get out, to depression. I just quit. What's the right answer? What are we supposed to do when we're in the pit? And this is a real, di- I mean, you guys, when I'm talking about pits, it's not, obviously we're not talking about just getting stuck in a pond. I'm talking about life, real things, right? You got your 20-something-year-old child who's walked away from the Lord, right? And you're hurting and you're frustrated and they're posting crazy stuff on social media, talking about how bad a parent you were. And they're ruining Christmas, influencing negatively the younger kids in the family, and you're like, what in the world? And you also realize, though, that 
some of the things they're saying about your parenting, they're not all wrong. You weren't a perfect parent. That part of the reason you're in your pit is because, yeah, you, you weren't perfect. But then the other part is they're just being a crazy jerk, right? You, there, there's this combination, right? It's a combination. And so sometimes being in the pit is really confusing of what to do with that, right? A marriage feels like it can't keep going. And you know you contributed to it part of the way. But it's hurtful. It's hard. And you're in this pit and you don't know how to get out. And you've been trying, doing the little, I'm going to run up the side of this hill. We'll just work hard enough. We'll make it happen. And you just keep sliding in, into the mud, into the mud, right? Or you give up and you're like, forget it. It's not worth trying anymore, okay? There's a middle way. There's another way. There's a better way. And here's what it is. This is called the waiting. What do we do when we find ourselves in one of life's pits? And David, it looks like, found himself in it multiple times. So don't be shocked if you end up in a pit more than once in life. I tend towards the despair side. I know when I'm walking in my flesh, I, I want to give up. I don't have the energy to run up the hill. I'm like, ah, forget it. I'll just sit here. And I despair. But I know what the Lord wants, and this is what he wants. When we're waiting in the pit, we know we can't get out. The first one is crying out to the Lord. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he heard my cry. That implies that David was crying out. Prayer, your first response to being in the pit is prayer. Don't skip that response. <laughs> Don't just go to, we're just going to work harder. We're going to figure it out. We're going to get some counseling. First step, prayer, cry out to the Lord. The second one is what David did here, right? He was in this pit of despair at the, at the end of the chapter, that he was, he was in some sort of, I'm poor and needy, come help me, Lord. But he reflects back on God's prior deliverance. Remember the faithfulness of God in the past in your life. And some of you might be like, I can't think of any time. If you're a believer, there was a time. It's called your salvation, right? That is when God pulled you out of the spiritual pit. That's the great deliverance. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Does God love you? He who did not spare his own son. Here you are. And here's God's son. And he chose not to spare him the suffering, the pain, the humiliation of the cross for you in order to rescue you, in order to pull you up out of your spiritual pit. And this is a bigger pit than just my marriage is struggling. This is the pit of Sheol. This is the pit of the grave. This is the pit of eternal separation from God an insurmountable obstacle that you cannot fix. That's what he pulled you up out of. And he did it by not sparing his precious only son. Does God love you? Yes. Yes. It goes without saying, God loves you. He gave him up for us all. If God's willing to go to that much trouble to rescue you from the pit of hell... How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
It's not a prosperity gospel message. I'm not saying go ask God for Ferrari right now. <laughs> My point is, is that if you can trust God to save you from the pit of hell, you can trust him to pull you up out of the broken marriage, out of the 20-year-old son or daughter who's acting like a fool, out of stress at work. Kids, you can trust young people. Y'all can trust God to pull you up out of the frustration and the fear of trying to get along with your friends at, at school and the peer pressure and all the temptations and all the emotions you're going through and your hormones and all this stuff. You can trust God to be faithful to that. Okay, you can trust God to walk you through the journey. Okay, he is for you. He loves you. All right, let's see a few more things about what we do while we're waiting in the pit. So you could flip to the next one. Uh, oh, the waiting. Yeah, I picked this one because um, I thought the waiting, sometimes we think of a relationship with God just like a machine. It's so like we're just a robot. Life's not that simple. It's not that clean like that. The waiting on God is sometimes really messy and really heart-wrenching and really difficult. We are people, we're made of flesh, not plastic and computer parts, right? So let's go to the next one, sorry. All right, while we wait, what do you do while you wait? Do you just sit there? No, you don't have to just sit there. Being in the pit doesn't mean just sit there. Here's what you do. Lamentations 3.15, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Trust in the goodness of God and seek him. Seek the Lord when you're in the pit. Isaiah 30, verse 8, blessed are all those who wait for him. There's a blessing as we wait upon the Lord. Psalm 130, verse 5 and 6, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I hope. In his word, I hope. Meditate upon the word of God in the pit. Open it up, read it prayerfully read it and put your hope in it. Read, pray, listen, trust, repeat. <laughs> read, pray, listen, trust, repeat. Let's go to the next slide. <clears throat> Psalm 33. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Rejoice in the Lord. And I'll say it again. Rejoice always. Sorry, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, rejoice always. Rejoice in the Lord. That's how am I say? I've gone blank on that verse. Help me, somebody. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Thank you. I just got, wasn't in my notes. I went blank for a moment. Um, but we're called to rejoice at all times. But even in the time of, dis there, there's times of discouragement. There's time of, Paul says, we despaired even of life at one point in his ministry. But we still, he also said, rejoice in the Lord always. And so we can rejoice even in the pit. Count your blessings, meditate upon the Lord, put your hope in him. Psalm 37, yes, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not. Stop worrying. Stop freaking out. In fact, that verse, if you read the rest of it, is talking about when uh, wicked people get away with their evil schemes. Stop freaking out about the guy that looks like he's getting away with it, right? Just trust in the Lord. Put your heart on him. Um, Proverbs 20, next, next one. A few more. I'm almost done. Proverbs 20, do not say I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. Have you been treated unjustly? Are you in the pit because of some other person's sin? 
some unjust treatment by somebody else, stop meditating upon it, stop talking about it, stop saying it out loud the way you've been wronged, stop focusing on that, I'm going to get revenge, I'm going to repay them for their evil. Because we, we like to think, I'm just bringing justice. <laughs> we love to bring justice when it's somebody else wronging us, right? But when we wrong somebody else, we don't love justice, we want mercy. Love, justice is good, just don't love it too much. Mercy's better. Um, hope that didn't sound wrong. <laughs> justice is good. God is just. I mean, don't love it too much when it means when somebody else has done you wrong and you're like, I got to get justice. Let's, let's be just. Let's love mercy. What else do we got? Let's, let's read this last one about Hebrews 9.28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting on him. So sometimes God does deliver us from the pit, the immediate context of the pit in this life. There's some pits that we don't experience full deliverance from until the return of Christ as we eagerly wait on him. Some of us experience chronic pain and it's possible that you'll experience chronic pain all your life. I I won't promise that's not possible. Some people experience it for a long period of time. I will promise though, I will promise that if you eagerly wait for him, when he returns, the pain's gone. It's done. He's erased it. There is no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, no more tears. There will be a day. And if you trust in the Lord, when you look back at those times of suffering, you will see that God was doing something and that what he was doing was worth it that the transformation that he was working in your life was more wonderful, more glorious, and your experience of fellowship with the Lord is more valuable than what you felt and you lost in that pain, okay? So pain has purpose. God uses it to teach us, to mold us, to even bless us, and to cause us to long for the treasures of heaven, so, so don't, don't assume that God doesn't have a purpose in pain. I promise you he does. Okay, next slide. The rescue, the rescue. He drew me up from the pit of destruction. Notice, notice who's doing what in these verses. He drew me up from the pit of destruction. He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. God drew us up. God set David's feet upon a rock, and it's God who made his steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth. Verse 5, you, speaking of God, have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. So we cry out, we wait patiently, we put our trust in the Lord, but he blesses and he rescues. And then last, the proper response. Let's flip to the next one. The first proper response is worship. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. So this word new song or this phrase new song comes up a lot in the Bible, a whole lot in the Bible. Frequently, it's, it's, it's frequently pointing towards the new covenant. It's pointing to what God is doing and accomplishing in Christ. And, and, and a lot of times it emphasizes the idea of the nations coming to the Lord, this, this gathering together. So the, the old covenant, the nation of Israel, and he is expanding it, sending the light to the Gentiles, to the nations. And this new song is especially pointed out in the end in Revelation verse 5. That's actually, let's jump one more. Jump to the next one. I want to 
uh, verse, chapter 5, verse 9 through 10. And they sang a new song, singing, or saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation 14.3 talks about that. Psalm 98, Psalm 33, Psalm 144, Psalm 149, Psalm 96. I'll read Psalm 96 real quick. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the people. So the new thing that God is doing under the new covenant is taking the good news of the gospel to all the nations, that the world might be glad, that all nations might rejoice in him, and we all might find and share in the good news of the salvation through Jesus Christ. So the first thing, the proper response to God's rescue is worship. Worship of the all, whole earth, worshiping God. The second one is obedience. <clears throat> Let's go to the next one. Verse 6, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So this is a, a messianic prophecy pointing to Jesus. Um, I'm not going to go into depth on that because there's a lot to it, and I'm afraid if I start opening it up, I don't have time to unpack it, and then you'd like, well, you just threw a bunch of clothes all over the front bench. So I want, I want us to, the, the main point of it in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 10, it's emphasizing the idea that through the blood of bulls and lambs and goats, that sin could not be atoned for. It was only a picture pointing to that which was coming and that was Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice, who through his death on a cross made perfect forever those who were being made holy. And that's us. So the fullness, the completion of our salvation is pointing to Jesus Christ. And so when he says sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, does that mean that God didn't command sacrifice and offerings in the Old Testament? No, he did. He did, but it wasn't his greatest desire. God, much, God valued far more in the Old and the New Testament the heart of man. And I'll read a few verses. And I, so I want to stay actually focused on David. So that's, if you're studying Hebrews, you can go into real depth on that. But let's, I want to stay focused on how does this apply to David? Because a lot of prophecies in the Bible, they apply to the immediate context of the person who's writing it, David. And then, other time, and then they also can apply to the coming of Jesus the Messiah. Or sometimes they come, they apply all the way to the end of the, end of the age. And so, it, so they, they can have multiple, it's called mountain topping, right? So if I'm standing here up on a mountain, I look out and I see a mountain top and a mountain top and a mountain top. They look like they're all kind of together. But if I were actually to go to them, they might be hundreds of miles apart. And so when you're looking at prophecy or telescope, which is another way people say it, you're looking out and you see an immediate fulfillment, you see a more distant fulfillment, and maybe even an ultimate fulfillment at the end of the world. Okay, so that's, that's you got to think about that when you're looking at prophecy because people get confused. They're like, well, wait a minute. Why didn't this happen right now? It, it's in the same chapter. And I'm like, well, it's probably a mountaintop. You're, you're seeing from the vantage point of looking out across time. And of course, to God, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. So we don't understand time quite like God does. But So let's look at obedience in the immediate context. He says, you have opened my ear. What does that mean? Give him Q-tips. 
What, what does it mean God opened my ear? Well, uh, there's two options. One is it was common for a slave when he decided that he reached his end of his term of service. He could say, you know what? I love my master and I want them to, him to take me to the door of his house, take an awl, piece of metal, hammer it through my ear, probably bend it into a circle or something, and I will be his free will slave for life, his bond slave. I have bound myself to this master out of love. I want to be his servant. I wasn't required. I want to be. So that could be one, that he opened his ear in the sense of he pierced it and opened it, that, that he is saying, you don't want a bunch of formulaic, heartless sacrifice. You don't want me to just come killing a sheep all the time and having no heart for you. God, you desire me to give my whole self to you, to bind myself over to you with all of my heart, to delight to do your will, O God. So that's what David's implying, that as God has rescued me from this pit, my response should be worship and obedience, delighting to do the will of the one who rescued me. The other option is here in Isaiah about opening our ears to hear and obey, right? Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He uses that as a metaphor with this idea of hearing and obeying. Having ears to hear is the same as being willing to receive, believe, and obey, okay? Um, I'll read verse, chapter 50, Isaiah, Isaiah 50, 5 through 6. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turn not backwards. <clears throat> so there is this idea of opening his ear to not opening one's ear to not be rebellious. Let's, let's say just a few more things about delighting. God's not delighting in sacrifice. What does God really want from us? Psalm fifty-one, verse sixteen and seventeen. I'm not sure if I have those up there or not, but. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. When, now, we don't make burnt offerings anymore, right? I, I don't. I assume you guys don't. Uh, <laughs> I need to talk about that. So we, do, we don't make burnt offerings anymore, but sometimes we try to negotiate with God in the pit, Right? Hey, God, if you do this for me, I'll, I'll do this, or I'll do that, right? And God's like, that's not what I'm asking you. I'm looking for a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. A broken and contrite heart. There's a lot of other passages. If you want to read more on it, 1 Samuel 15, verses 22, Hosea 6, verse 6, and Micah 6, verse 6 through 8. So I, I'll give you those verses if you want to dig into that a little bit more, but it's very, very interesting how the different aspects. Let's look at the, the very last response, the last proper response. Go to the next slide. Oh, one more. There we go. The last proper response when God redeems us from the pit is evangelism. Verse 9, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. The glad news of deliverance. Sounds like the gospel, doesn't it? All right? And that's, that's the truth. When God delivers us, we should proclaim it. We should share it joyfully. And sometimes, out of fear of man, we conceal God's steadfast love and faithfulness from others. 
We just want to blend in. You know, I want to shake things up. People might reject us. They might make fun of me. They might be offended that I believe such things, right? But he says, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. Oh, that that would be said of us, that we would be that bold and courageous to speak about his salvation to others around us. All right, there is so much more in this book I could go into, but I know at some point, you guys, your stomachs will start grumbling and (laughs) minds will start wandering. I'm not looking at anybody particularly, but I'm sure there would be minds that would start wandering. So um, I don't know how y'all normally close out. Do y'all normally have a time of response and prayer? What's that? And what, oh, right, right, okay, all right, let's don't stop lollygagging, huh? Okay, so um, I just, I just want to, can I just give a few recommended responses? And I, and I just ask you to pray and seek the Lord over that. Number one, in the midst of the pit, when you feel yourself looking for God's rescue, remember that God loves to show mercy. The center of this whole psalm was that God will not restrain himself from showing mercy. He, he's worse than you moms. Like, he really loves to show mercy. He really does. And moms, y'all teach us, old men, uh, the beauty of God's mercy. So we need to listen to y'all sometimes. Now, every once in a while, y'all mess up the kids. But, 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 but God loves mercy. God loves mercy. The second one is, blessed are those who wait patiently for the Lord and put their hope in his word. There is something beautiful when we wait patiently for him. And the last is, when you're in the middle of the pit, reflect on God's prior deliverance. Either in individual circumstances or even more so, his salvation through Christ. So, pass it on to my brother Kevin.